welcome back to Recorded Conversations, the podcast that's dedicated to compassionately considering all perspectives while engaging in authentic, connected dialogue. I'm Danielle Kingstrom. This is episode 37, and we're picking right back up and talking about how the coronavirus is going to affect us collectively. My guest today is Provost Professor Fritz Breithaupt. He is a professor at the University of Indiana Bloomington. He has founded and directs the Experimental Humanities Laboratory at IU, and he also wrote a book called The Dark Sides of Empathy. You might be familiar with his work. Last year when the book came out, NPR did an incredible article about the downfalls of empathy, the things that we don't pay attention to regarding empathy. It reminded me of Pastor Greg Boyd's idea of the principle of proportionality. With all good, there is the possibility that it can be used for bad. Empathy benefits humanity. Empathy is something that benefits us personally. It benefits other people. But with everything, it can be used in a manipulative way, and it can actually be a fuel to divisions, which is something that Fritz will talk about later on here in the discussion. So some of the questions that I just had for myself and for the entire world were these. What kind of an impact on empathy can we expect from a pandemic? Does empathy diminish if one feels an inability to provide relief? Does empathy fuel division? Does anxiety activate empathy? I'm going to read a little bit of something from the back of his book and then we'll get to the conversation. Many consider empathy to be the basis of moral action. However, the ability to empathize with others is also a prerequisite for deliberate acts of humiliation and cruelty toward them. In The Dark Sides of Empathy, Fritz contends that people commit atrocities not out of failure of empathy, but rather as a direct consequence of over-identification. Even well-meaning compassion can have many unintended consequences, such as intensifying conflicts or exploiting others. Empathy plays a central part in a variety of highly problematic behaviors, from mere callousness to terrorism, exploitation to sadism, and emotional vampirism to stalking. Empathy all too often motivates and promotes malicious acts. After tracing the history of empathy as an idea in German philosophy, Breithaupt looks at the wide-ranging series of case studies. From Stockholm Syndrome to Angela Merkel's refugee policy, and from novels of romantic era to helicopter parents and murderous cheerleader moms, to uncover how narcissism, sadism, and dangerous celebrity obsessions alike find their roots in the qualities that arguably most makes us human. You can find The Dark Sides of Empathy on Amazon. And listeners, as always, I invite you to compassionately consider the perspective of Professor Fritz Breithaupt. Enjoy the episode. a little different now I mean we can't go to the library we can't go to the park we you know I can't I can't take them grocery shopping with me anymore or anything and you know we use those kind of ways to get out of the house too and socialize and meet up with people and Mm -hmm. so that's limiting but eh, what do you do it's almost gardening season so I'm like we're gonna be busy soon anyway it doesn't matter we're gonna be busy yes yeah exactly so that's Gardening is a good thing. Gardening started here already, so we are in a good oh, spot. 
Lucky, I'm so anxious. I just keep, it started snowing yesterday and I went, no, I want to go there. I know I have about a month at least to go, but I'm I'm anxious for that. I haven't been this anxious for gardening in a long time. Mm-hmm. Yes, that's true. I've, uh, I've also been neglecting my gardening for quite a while now, um, but this year I've not. So I already planted some trees, so I feel good about it. Oh yeah, I hope we planted fruit trees about five or six years ago. So we're hoping that we'll get plums, pears and apples this year. So that would be nice. It takes Sorry. a while for them to get going. But I think um, I noticed the one thing that I laughed at is a lot of people were like, I think I'm going to start gardening this year. And I thought, yeah, now's the time to think about it. You know, that pandemic will push us in to start thinking about more traditional skills and, and yes. practices to implement into our life. Yes. Um, is there a lot of panic around you? Are people... Ah, uh, panic? Is there panic? No, I would actually say we are already settling into like a second phase where people mm -hmm. have noticed they will not be panic. Mm -hmm. There will not be this general state of catastrophe, rather that we are kind of in, in something that is more amorphous, that will go on and continue like this with an unclear outcome. Um, so yesterday I had my lab meeting via online virtually with all the different students and only one of them reported having witnessed true panic mm. of someone in a grocery sh shop who had kind of really piled up the whole thing and was pushing people out of the way with the car to say out of your way out of your way and pan panicking through but that was the only thing so yeah i haven't seen it either i went to the grocery store i think it's been over a week now but it was quiet. That's the one thing. There was not a lot of chatter. People weren't stopping in the aisles to chit chat and catch up. That was the only thing that I noticed as a striking difference. I was like, well, people aren't even socializing. They're just so scared. Yes. My daughter went yesterday and she said, everybody was checking everybody else's carts. Like, what do you got in your cart? And she's like, were they counting? I said, or maybe they're looking for ideas. Like, oh, wait, did I think about that? I said, I don't know. But she said she felt like she was being kept tabs on. Every time mm -hmm. she put something in, people would look at her like, how many are you getting? And, um, <laughs> yes, so, yeah. and I told her too, I said, don't go overboard. Just get what you think we need and mm -hmm. only what we need and we'll be fine. Like, cause our seeds arrived. I'm like, you know what? In a few weeks, we're gonna be harvesting stuff anyway. It's fine. The asparagus will start popping through soon. We'll eat asparagus. We're fine. <laughs> nice. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. So, but one of the things that I really started thinking about a lot, a lot lately was kind of like the collective consequence of forced mm -hmm. isolation. And for me, I had just remembered thinking this has got to take a toll on how our empathy is extended or even if it's extended or if it's manipulated. And so I thought, who better than you to talk about how is empathy affected during a crisis? Yes. Um, of course, we're coming to all the limits of our empathy. And I think the limits that we are hitting have a lot to do with this unclear situation we are all in collectively. Um, right now, most people are focused on themselves. So it's much harder to have empathy. Um, and it's also that everyone is in the same situation and more or less the same situation with a lot of unclear trajectories. No one knows exactly how this will end. Will this be 
just like a little kind of thing and we'll go back to normalcy. Will I get affected or not? And that unclear situation stops people from having empathy with others. Mm. And paradoxically, even the fact that we are all in the same boat kind of makes us not connect to others. To have empathy works better when you kind of are intrigued by the other person. There's something different. There's something novel in it. Or you see something that they don't see. Um, then you, that's easier for you to absorb those emotions. But if they are the same as yours anyway, it's harder. So I think on many levels, I mean, there's many more, and I will go through a couple of them more, but, but the real thing right now is that we are um, having, it's very hard for people right now to feel empathy for others. Yeah, and I, I recall I wrote something down from your book, The Dark Sides of Empathy, on page 133, you said, if the situation seems hopeless, people intuitively feel and show less empathy. And I know there's a lot of people out there mm -hmm. thinking in these hopelessness terms, like, there's nothing we can do. It's the end of the world. And that would, I would think, want to, someone would want to um, keep themselves more safe by like just kind of going, fine, I'm dealing with this isolation and I'm not caring about anybody. It's just me right now, me against the world. And I think that's, um, I think I've seen a lot of those attitudes. I don't know if they're actually being acted out, but I guess, um, I'm wondering if you can just kind of pick up on that and talk about that. When we feel like we can't offer someone else relief, we're less empathetic. Mm -hmm. Yes, I, I think that's a, that's a very good point here, that it's not so clear always where it starts. Um, do you not feel empathy because you are self-absorbed or because you feel like you can't help anyway or the others don't move you? All of these kind of things um, come together to set an activity in motion that just limits ourselves, that we don't have empathy. Now, this also is the same, the same is true for the flip side. Once we get ourselves to feel empathy, we will feel better. And that goes in both directions. It means again that, hey, by you having empathy already, for whatever reasons, you will feel better. But it also means that if you get yourself, if you give yourself a little kick and push to feel empathy, as a consequence, you will also feel better. So it goes both ways. You already feel better, so you can have empathy with others, or you feel, will feel better by having empathy with others. So we need that little push right now, and that little push is, is harder to find. It's not coming naturally in many occasions. Mm, it's not coming naturally, yeah. Why do you think that is? What do you think has affected our ability to give ourselves that little push for empathy extension? there's a couple of things. I mean, we, are, um, we like to have empathy when we see um, that it makes a difference, is limited in time, and has a certain kind of um, arc that we feel for someone, that we co-experience their situation, go hand in hand with them, feel their emotions. But then we see this resolve, this comes somewhere, that it leads to a happy end or some resolution, and then we can part ways again. Now, none of that works very well right now. No. <laughs> we don't see where this is going to. We can't part. There's no resolution coming. So it's very hard for us to kind of jump on the boat of someone else and their emotions and their situation because we might be stuck there. Then we are suddenly thinking about how they are doing, but they're there's no development. 
Uh, we need that development of something that um, leads to a solution that releases us. Mm-hmm. I see empathy as something, and I have to explain this a little bit. I see empathy as something that um, is, mm, is it's a crude metaphor, but it, it nevertheless works. It's a little bit like an investment. We bestow it on someone, we go with them, but then afterwards we want to withdraw it mm. back to us. We want to return to ourselves. Mm. Um, we f- go with someone else. We become to some degree someone else. We feel with them. Their life is our reality. But then we know we have to return to ourselves. And this return, we need help for. We need to know, oh, there will be a good ending, sometimes a bad ending too, but it's an ending. It brings us back to ourselves. And right now we don't see that. I think in many, many of us, when we reach out to other people, we don't know where that's going to. So we lean, feel too much for them. We are stuck in their perspective. And that, that, that is a big limitation for, for many people right now. I mean, I've, I noticed that too. Yeah. And if we, and what happens then if we're those types of people who are like, well, I'm going to be intentionally empathetic and I don't care about the, the parameter of the time frame, and I'm going to keep doing it don't they exhaust themselves and burn themselves out then? And just what happens mm-hmm. to that empathy? What does it turn into? Mm-hmm. Very good point. I mean, there are um, many of us, and this is wonderful, who, uh, who feel empathy, who, who can do this, who will also give them that little push to feel something. So first of all, th- that is something very good. Um, there are traps with this. There is self-loss and um, other feelings coming out of this. But first of all, I would like to say, this is a good thing. Uh, it's a good thing for the community. But even if you look at it more selfishly, people with empathy tend to have a more happy life. Mm-hmm. They even live longer. We can measure this now. We can see people who have more empathy live longer. They're in a more active community. So we don't know why that is. Is it because they are in a better network, people will help them? Or is it just directly because they feel more? What kinds of people, like what kinds of professions do we have those kind of demographics? Do we know? Well, um, there are some demographics where you would exactly imagine it, um, like nurses um, and people in some of the health professions, um, not so much medical doctors. Medical doctors, we see the opposite. Mm. They suffer from empathy fatigue, burnout. Um, and that probably has to do a lot with their walking conditions that they have to see a lot of patients very quickly um, and then don't see them continuously. But doctors are on the other extreme spectrum that um, a third of them lose most of their empathic um, skills after a year of practice already or during med school already. And another thought is very challenged. So doctors are very, um, it's very hard for them not to have this empathy fatigue or empathy burnout those are not technical terms, but they describe what yeah. we mean by this. Nurses don't suffer from that. Nurses um, um, tend to spend more time with patients and probably have less time pressure. That's probably yeah. a key driver of that difference. There's others too, and we don't know, understand all the dynamics very well. Teachers tend to be doing okay too. Um, people who are in the social professions that's where we would. Ex- that, that's exactly where we would expect high empathy, and it is true. Um, of course, people also select those professions because they already f- they, they they like to be mm, around. They're drawn to it, yeah. So that, there's a lot of that is in those areas. But then again, there's people in all kind of areas too. I mean, people don't just pr- choose their profession based on their empathy skills, but those are definitely areas where you have that. 
Okay. And so, so your original question, if I could jump to that, was yeah. um, the question, so what happens when, when people kind of exhaust themselves and they keep pushing themselves now especially to say, no, I will have empathy? Um, it's, it's, it depends. Um, but there, is, there, there are two negative possibilities. The one is the what I described as empathy burnout. out. Uh, this, um, and that's, these are really colloquial terms to describe a very serious phenomenon, of course, um, that people get, just get so exhausted by this process, there's too little return coming for them, um, that afterwards, or after a while, they just really do not feel em- any empathy any longer. There's another possible um, negative outcome and I emphasize the dark sides of empathy. There's also got a lot of good outcomes, even for people who exhaust themselves. They have, they have way to, to um, refuel yourself for many people. Mm-hmm. But then the other negative outcome that is possible to de- de- not just being fatigued, but to develop resentment, to get yeah. aggressive about it, to um, in a very aggressive way then start to uh, f- develop negative feelings about others for feeling as a lack of recognition in some cases um, where you Mm -hmm. feel like you're doing so much, you're doing all that emotional work with and for others and you don't see the return coming anymore because people are scared right now. They are um, focused on themselves. They are unable to perceive what's going on. Um, And not everyone is as media savvy as people who are watching the pod- podcast because or listening to it because they already are connected on the internet but others can't do this over far distances they need the proximity there can be aggression moving out blind aggression very specific aggression to other people wow yeah i read that you said that empathy feeds into resentment in the form of rage because we've sacrificed our own self and mm-hmm. it's it's interesting i hadn't really thought about it that we kind of expect empathy to be reciprocal. And when you think about the definition, you wouldn't have that expectation that you're like, oh, well, I want some in return. But the reality is that's kind of our nature. We want that back, especially during mm-hmm. these scary situations. I'm like, and I felt that way too for a little bit. I was like, I'm trying to help all these other people and encourage people. And at the same time, I'm like, do you care? I'm freaking out. You know, I'm kind of freaking out too. But nobody saw that I was freaking out because I wasn't putting it out there either. And I had to take a step back and remind myself I didn't have to be freaked out, but I was because it's just like, you don't know what's going to happen. And for a moment you have to kind of sit with that chaos. And I noticed it was hard for me to be empathetic. I was growing cynical. I just Mm -hmm. was like, screw the compassion. You guys aren't even listening to me. I got super cynical. And then I just went, okay, I got to be silent and quiet and think about this, but it seems like the more they tell us, the less confident we feel about anything. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, I just see empathy, like just going zoom every day through social media, especially. Um, And in one case, in part of, in the dark sides of empathy, you talk about how empathy can possibly fuel division. Mm -hmm. I'm wondering if we could open that up a little bit and if you could break that down. Yes. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I like to just emphasize again what you said before. I mean, this idea that we want to to have a return from empathy, that's, that's a very good point. I mean, um, uh, empathy is not just a mere blind giving. Um, it can feel that way. 
and it also can be that. And that is a wonderful thing when it happens, of course. But quite often, um, we, without knowing it, we expect some return. I mean, some, as a minimum, some recognition or shoulder clapping, sometimes more. I mean, it can be love, it can be friendship, it can be a return of empathy, um, some humanity that comes back to you. Um, so, so for me, empathy is not, I mean, it's also, it, it, there's a very selfish side to empathy. I mean, mm -hmm. empathy enriches the life of the person who feels empathy. They also get to co-experience others, even from a far distance. There's, it brings something to you. But often we also want the actual currency from others, the direct return. I mean, they say, hey, and what's about me? I'm here too. Please yeah. see me. I'm a human being. Um, I'm walking here. I'm sitting here alone. I'm doing this podcast. I'm not just some kind of, exactly. I, 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 I'm a human being. I, yeah. I need th that feeling of it. Very, very good point. Okay. You did ask me about something different here about the polarization effect of empathy. Yes. And that's, um, that is a severe matter. Uh, most people always think that empathy is so good for conflict resolution. If people only had a little bit of more empathy, we wouldn't be in this divided wall. We wouldn't, there would be peace. There wouldn't be wars. We would not have so many arguments and all of those kind of things. Um, but my point here is, um, and I say that more in general first, and we can apply it to the current situations afterwards. In general, I think empathy can be a very dangerous fuel to division. Um, in very many cases, I would say that empathy increases the polarization instead of bringing it down. And how that works is simple. People see a conflict. They learn about the conflict. They witness this. It can be an argument between two people. It can also be a civil war, um, like between the um, in Israel between the Israelis and the Palestinian people, um, and all kinds of divisions. It can also just be a fairly harmless sport contest. They see a conflict of some sort or some tension, and then most people take a side. We, we're very good at side taking. We like someone, kind of, we pick a side, we make a very quick judgment takers. We see someone for a second and we know I like this person or I don't like this person. Fractions of a second, in fact. Um, and then something interesting happens. When we choose a, once we choose a side, we're drawn into the conflict. We see the conflict from their perspective. We suddenly see the other side as, well, the opponent. Um, they look, the other side suddenly looks a little bit worse to us. We are starting to adopt the vision of the side that we have chosen. And then we start to feel that also emotionally to say, hey, I really dislike these other people. They make me angry. They're bad people. We copy the, the or we might copy then the, the whole value judgment and the emotional feeling of the other side, which means we, become, we start to demonize the other side. We care less about them. Um, their side is less important for us. And again, this can be harmless. In a sports game, it's more fun to watch a sports game when you're really for the one side. Yeah. The Vikings, in your case, maybe. I do not know. <laughs> um, um, and then the others are not quite as relevant. If someone of the other players is injured or doesn't make his goal or score or whatever it is, it doesn't matter so much. Um, it's not so pale. And that now you can imagine how this can be looking like in a political conflict or a real tension. Then we suddenly start to not see the other side. This goes so far that I think it can be, um, that, that empathy can be um, 
can lead to something like terrorism, mm. where a terrorist like the sleeper cells is part of a conflict or sees it even from afar, chooses a side, knows which side is or picks a side, and then kind of overly demonizes the other side, paints the whole conflict in, in good and evil tones, and then forgets the humanity of the other side, gets very violent and aggressive in suppressing others. Mm-hmm. So that is this polarization effect of empathy. If you choose your one side, the others become invisible. They don't count any longer. And you um, stop to um, have any concern for them, to have any empathy for them. Because you already have empathy. So it's not a lack of empathy that drives division here. It's actually a lot of an excess of empathy, but only for your one side. Over-identification, overly empathetic to that one side only. Mm. And so how are you seeing that worked out in the current situation? Well, um, in the current situation, um, it's, I, I mean, there's a lot of things happening right now. But again, um, it is the question when we develop this feeling of divisions, when they're the us, us and the others, when we stop to care for certain others. Um, I don't see that so much right now, actually. I don't think that is the main issue, that we have a divided society here. We had a divided society before already. Um, and I think it's basically we see more of a continuation of the same kind of thing here. So people, um, if we take it as a political division, there will be um, kind of using the same kind of responses as before. Oh, those Democrats, those Republicans. Um, so their responses to the crisis will be seen as that's the wrong kind of re- reply. So mm. we, we bring our anxiety into pre-existing conflicts and then bring out some more rage and con- um, aggression on that side here. So if you look in the social media right now, that you, you can see there's, again, there's a lot of aggression about certain proposals by the one or the other side um, and a lot of dismissiveness. I think it's, in this case, the conflict is not bringing it out. The conflict is just providing f- uh, f- uh, further kindling for that fire that's already there. Hmm. What do you think about... Do you think that either side or either representatives, any representatives of either side are utilizing empathy in a dark way, either not just because of this pandemic, but before or in any effort to continue maybe their own position? Yes. I mean, that is very simple. Um, I think uh, both sides, um, and uh, I mean, the political sides is not the only ones where this is happening, but in, in various ways, where, wherever there's divisions in society, people use this. Um, and they don't have to um, understand, they don't have to read books about this. They, there's yeah. an intuitive feeling about it that um, when you cast others in a negative light, when you are in a conflict situation, when you cast others in a negative light, it helps your own side. At least for your followers, for your group, everyone has another reason to bond to your side. And when there's already kind of a state of anxiety, nervousness, feelings of um, being insecure, um, not safe, and all of that, um, it takes very little to bring that out. 
um, there's a very little that brings out further aggressions in that direction. And, and I think people notice that. I mean, people know that in the moment they, they bring out a negative comment um, that immediately um, it will be taken up. Yeah. Will be amplified, will be used, weaponized. So then is anxiety activated by situations that demand like extreme empathy? Um, anxiety activized by situations demand extreme empathy. Um, I think so. I think so. That's actually, I often, I would have thought about it first of all, the other way around that you have anxiety. And then of course, if you see someone having anxiety, uh, that should usually get people to feel empathy for that person with anxiety. Yeah someone being vulnerable, being in a weak situation usually triggers that. Yeah. Um, but it also, of course, goes the other way around. Um, because, and that's, that's a very clever point, actually, to say that um, there is um, um, there's a situation that demands empathy, but that produces anxiety by itself already. Yeah. Because if there's, a, if there's an expectation of empathy, then there's an expectation on us people to feel something to feel empathy mm -hmm. and that can be, induce a lot of stress. I mean, yeah. a lot of the healthcare workers right now, they know they are very, very important to keep us, to keep the ship afloat, to keep society going. Other people too here, I mean, other people who are in very crucial um, work positions here, like the people in the shops, or the supermarkets, all the people who keep it going, they know there's something demanded of them here. Yeah. And, that is, and that expectation, knowing that there's an expectation, that induces anxiety. And then, of course, leads to the opposite of empathy, to lead to a shutdown of empathy. Yeah. Yeah, that's something I noticed. My daughter, she works at a gas station. And so, you know, she sees everybody. She hears all their fears. And, of course, they're, they're cloaked in just, you know, side comments or whatever. And she just comes home every day. And do these people understand what I'm doing for them? And I'm like, do you understand how scared these people are? And do you understand that you are in a position where you have to empathize mm -hmm. with their fears right now? Are you scared, Lily? Yes. Okay. Well, they're scared too. Relate. Be there for them. Ignore their side comments. And that's something that I think we're all having a hard time doing. We're mm -hmm. all being so activated and offended by someone's fears. Someone is reactively showing their fears right now. Know that. Know that we're all doing that. I mean... I, I caught myself, I mean, I went on a deleting spree. I noticed that a couple of days I was just mean. I was not positive. And I'm like, we're going to get rid of some of these tweets. That was not cool. Um, and it's okay to pay attention and go, you know what? I've been reactive. I'm going to settle down. Mm -hmm. But if we're mm -hmm. always in this like heightened sense of activation, I, I just see that empathy is just like bouncing off of this wall of this activation and it can't get through. And I, I just wonder, like, what kind of techniques can we implement to, you know, lower our anxiety and be open to extending empathy without allowing it to exhaust us and without allowing it to create resentment within? Like, what would you recommend that we could, even if it's a simple breathing exercise, what should we pay attention to? What should we be aware of to make sure that we're not letting our empathy turn dark? Mm-hmm. 
that that is a excellent observations and i love the story of your daughter at the gas station i mean that's a very typical situation right now where we have a lot of people who are helping everyone um and don't get that recognition i mean they come back and they're especially um exhausted so i i'm really i mean i feel sorry for all the people in the supermarkets yeah. Um, who constantly clean, who are in danger to getting exposed and then carrying it on to their own family and they know that and they're there anyway. They're doing their work. Um, and instead they get customers who are especially cautious and they might even be aggressive as yeah. you described because they're anxious too. So um, there's a lot of, there's a lot of um, hidden heroism right now going on. Yeah. People really doing amazing things. So the first thing is for us to, um, and it, maybe that's actually what you were describing with your daughter I think is a perfect example. What did you do? You explained to her, oh, you're afraid. Those, are, those people also are anxious. They, they are in their own situation. They're stressed. Understanding. Um, understanding, giving yourself a mental push can do a lot of things. Um, trying to be curious about others. If you can induce yourself to say, okay, take a deep breath. Let me focus on other people for a little bit and let me see what is their situation. Asking people questions right now um, to direct away from you, wanting to know, so how are you, you personally, how are you dealing with this? What's happening in your world right now? Um, that is one of these little things that gets you out of yourself um, to at least listen, at least to understand what's going on. And when once you get yourself out, out of yourself to, to feel something like empathy or at least have some curiosity about it, you feel better too, precisely because you're not focused on yourself any longer. So it's an interesting dynamic that, that um, by feeling empathy, you feel better too. Um, and you can kind of elevate yourself to a level where you see it's a little bit more relaxing too. So your breathtaking can actually be empathy by you having some empathy, conscious empathy, with a little kind of control to say, oh yeah, now let's be curious. Let's ask questions. Mm -hmm. Let's see how others are dealing with it. What is different for them than it is for me? By just getting that um, cognitive, intellectual understanding, you set things in emotions that are actually helping you too, even physically, that you can breathe a little bit more. Once you get yourself to, to do exactly what you described there, you're doing better already. Um, and then, of course, there's also the, the side of overexposure. Sometimes you just need to have some distance. So finding your other kind of ways, what you said, the, the breathing exercise, um, finding the things that, that help you, um, going for walks. And if that is in a small apartment, find something that is a substitute. It's those kind of things. I mean, mental, taking mentally care of yourself. Um, and, of course, currently there's few people who will take care of you. So you have, everyone has to think a little bit of the people in their own circle. I mean, how can we all take care of ourselves? Yeah, yeah. And, you know, and, and I'm a silver lining kind of person. And I think this is just, you know, an awful situation. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, how important do we know rest and silence and stillness and separation really is for us and our mental health? And I love that people can take an opportunity right now to sit and be still and have some rest. I wish they knew that, but not only that, as much as I'm a silver lining person. So I'm saying guys, just at least a day, give yourself a day to just chill and not worry and, and think about all of the, 
all of the things you have to be grateful for in front of you. But then I turn off and I think of a, you know, secondary consequence. And that's what happens when we are isolated and then we go back out to the real world. Does that have an impact on our empathy? If Mm -hmm. this becomes too long of a thing, if we're Mm -hmm. shelter in place too long, can our empathy be negatively impacted by isolation? Yes. Yes. We do not know yet at this point. Yeah. Because we've never had anything like this before. Exactly. I mean, um, in a way, if you think about the history of mankind of the last million years, short history of a million years here. Real brief. (laughs) We could describe it as an increasing of social distancing. Mm. Um, So primates, um, they do their social work by grooming. So they constantly physically need to touch each other in the group to be in sync with each other. Human beings, this is the argument by an evolutionary psychologist with the name Robin Dunbar, they have replaced this physical grooming. It's not a cleaning. It's really just a feel-good thing with gossiping. Social chit chat. We talk to each other, but it's already a little distance. We know of each other. We do the same kind of thing. We are in sync with the group. We chit chat from some distance. Now, in this history, um, if you go back like 10,000 years ago, um, in the moment the nomads, our ancestors, stopped being nomadic, they built houses. Houses have walls. Private property emerges, walls separate. Suddenly, your family clans that are separated from others. Rooms are separated more. I mean, increasingly, the family becomes smaller. Um, in 200 years ago, the nuclear family emerged where people live together only in a very small household, mother, father, children, maybe someone else, but that's becoming un- uncommon. So um, it gets more and more narrow and the social distance bec- between all others is growing. Individuality has emerged and all of that. So the question here, this is why I'm giving you this long professorial lecture here. Is, <laughs> is this the next step? Are we basically now getting used to, even more used mm. to the long distance relationships? Social media have already trained us to us to that. Now we have Zoom relationships and we have relationships with Skype and all of that. Um, will we co- fully come back from that? I mean, I am, I mean, like you, I'm actually an optimist. I notice now I have a lot of conversations with my neighbors, I, I'm lucky. I have a yard. I do get to do a gardening walk right now. And whenever I do that, every neighbor who walks by or walks a dog or who's at his fence or her fence, um, they'll stop. They'll talk from a safe mm. distance. So there's something there. This, this, we can't do shoulder rubbing, but can, we can do fence rubbing or something. There's something happening there too. So I'm, I'm, there, could be a, there, this, there could be a positive development here. There could be something that people rather come back to the ground and say, oh, we miss this so much. We treasure the, the direct communications here. So for a lot of people, I do see um, this as a wake-up call to say, oh, don't forget this. Mm. So let's, but, but I mean, this can go either way. It could also train us in that to say, oh yeah, why should I ever leave my room? I mean, I have everything there once in a while. I, I mean, Amazon now le- delivers all food for everyone and has been doing that for a while. So we'll probably, I mean, we'll get more of that. So, so in that sense, I mean, I think it's a crucial test for us right now. And I hope yeah. very much that it will bounce back. 
but the opposite can also happen. That is a true fear here. Yeah. It might polarize us more. Yeah, that's what I worry about, the polarization and, and the further of the distancing and the disconnect. And I heard this word tossed around, dislocation. And I think it brought me to get a little interested in someone by the name of Hannah Arendt. And I was not mm-hmm. familiar with her work. And she talked a lot about how with the Industrial Revolution, was it, we kind of traded this family and community for isolation and effectively Mm -hmm. a social distancing Mm -hmm. too. And I thought, wow, the more advanced we become and the more progress we make to better humanity and better practices with work and labor and injustice, we actually grow more distant from one another. Mm -hmm. And sometimes I think maybe it does take a pandemic to remind us what really does matter and to kind of close us all back in because I kind of, this is my life. Like I said earlier, it's like nothing's really changed for us because we are, we're three miles from town. My husband works here on the farm. I homeschool. I can work from home and our life is centered here. And you know, like my grandson is here too. And we've just always not been super social. And so we're not really seeing a lot of um, changes, but I think about all the extroverts and all the social butterflies and especially considering how high a populations live alone, mm-hmm. what kind of effects that are just being created and what kind of new programming would come out of this if we don't do something to counter the anxiety and the lack of empathy or the overexertion mm-hmm. of empathy. Mm-hmm. Um, all of that is to say is I, you know, I'm still going to look at this like we're still always an evolving social experiment, aren't we? Like always. Yes. yes. So we have that to look forward to. Um, Fritz, yes. thank you for this. Thank you oh. for doing it on such short notice and for offering your empathy expertise. <laughs> um, any any work coming up? Are you are you going to do another book? Anything like that? Or are you just chilling? Yes. Yes. Oh, no, 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 no. <laughs> My next book is um, The Narrative Brain. Um, how we process the world in stories and how our narrative thinking shapes how we live and how we make decisions in all respects. That sounds really fascinating. When can we expect that? Well, I mean, I had hoped to have it ready this summer, but I think it will be ready only in the winter time. So okay, okay. A year, maybe a year plus. Unfortunately, okay. I mean, I'm publishing essays. So um, my lab, the Experimental Humanities Lab, is doing a lot of stuff studies right now with uh, story retellings and um, how narratives are already perceived, empathy and narratives, emotions very strongly. We're, we're having studies on emotions right now on narratives. So interesting things are coming out. Where can I find those? Where can we find those essays? Where do you publish them at? Um, mostly in academic journals, but some of them come out in open access journals like uh, Plus. So what if I hop on JSTOR? Can I find it there? JSTOR, you can find it. If you Google right. my name, you can find it. I mean, Plus One is a big place for it. Okay. Frontiers of Psychology is another one. Ooh. Yes. yes All right. I can. Obviously, I'll, I'll do some digging and reading later then. <laughs> <laughs> okay. All right. Well, keep me posted on the book and I'm going to go track down your work and see what I can learn from you. Thank you so much, Fritz. Thank you. Thank you very much, Daniel. Thank you for keeping up the good work and the good spirits here. That's very important, right? Now.